Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to Arc's FYI podcast. My name is Yasin. I cover crypto assets at Arc, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Nate Madry, head of research at CoinMetrics, a leading crypto asset data provider. And actually the main collaborator of our most recent two-part Bitcoin white paper, which we're really excited to share with you all. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, both parts are currently live on our website at arc-invest.com. For the purpose of this episode, we're just going to kind of talk about some of the findings and really dig into some interesting research and insight. So welcome, Nate. Hey, Asimia. Thanks for having me. Great. So before we dive into the research, can you just quickly introduce yourself, introduce CoinMetrics for the listeners who, who may not be aware of what you guys are doing? Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, I lead our research here at CoinMetrics. So CoinMetrics is a leading crypto asset data provider. We do a variety of different data, starting kind of with what we call network data, which is on-chain metrics coming from the blockchains themselves. We run a bunch of our own nodes. And then we also do market data. So looking at exchange, trading volume, and we're also getting into indexes and other data areas. We mostly focus on institutions, but we also have offerings for kind of retail investors and community data that's available for everyone as well. I want you to just quickly touch on sort of, I would say, on-chain analytics more broadly, if you can. I think that is probably one of the most deeply underappreciated parts of the crypto world from sort of an outsider's view. I mean, the way that I like to sort of frame it is that it's like a, a global balance sheet that's effectively accessible to everyone. And, and can also give very unique information that is sort of atypical of other asset classes. So if you do, do you want to sort of briefly touch on the importance of on-chain as it pertains to Bitcoin and crypto more broadly? That's one of the coolest parts of crypto for me, which makes sense as a data analyst. But yeah, so I mean, I'm sure we're going to dive into this, but you can see every single Bitcoin transaction that's ever happened. All of it is, is viewable on chain. Anyone can download that data and verify it. And that opens up a whole new world of possibilities for, for data analysis. You can see the balances that every different address is holding, essentially how much each user has. You can see how that shifts over time. You can kind of compute a whole bunch of, of new kind of metrics that aren't really available in, in traditional financial systems. Precisely. It's really interesting to have this really new paradigm for kind of analyzing assets that don't exist in other asset classes. And in fact, is a really great seg into kind of the research that we tried to do in, in setting up the backdrop for kind of how to think about these open source networks, how to think about Bitcoin in particular as this sort of novel economic institution. And it was really sort of an extension of some of the research that we were conducting back in 2015 
we sort of published our first white paper on Bitcoin around five years ago that laid sort of Bitcoin as ringing the bell for a new asset class. And so we sort of analyzed kind of the characteristics of Bitcoin in the context of different asset classes and ultimately came to the conclusion that it was indeed sort of the birth of this new asset class. I think increasingly, especially for, from an institutional standpoint, as sort of there's regulatory uncertainty as to how to really classify or define this asset, particularly in the United States, it's still for someone who's just starting to understand this kind of a difficult concept to fully put your head around. And so the point of this paper was really to take an institutional approach to sort of defining Bitcoin and then ultimately laying out the case for Bitcoin as an investment. In the context of kind of how this fits into to what you said about sort of on-chain metrics and how this really breeds sort of this new asset class or this new institution, I think one really, really interesting framing is around how if you look at the evolution of economic organization, right, where we st- sort of started off, you know, in, in hunter-gatherer society where most interaction was face-to-face, we ultimately evolved into the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution occurred. And so today, really, the focus of kind of the economy and and economic organization more broadly has shifted from sort of traditional industries developed through industrialization to industries enabled by information technology. And so most economic activity has migrated from the physical world to the digital world. A lot of the power sort of being granted to those in charge of sort of storing and distributing information. And with the sort of advent and the rise of the Internet, one of the most sort of notable institutions that facilitated that coordination has been Bitcoin. And Bitcoin sort of as this open source network that sort of facilitates the transfer and storage of value without necessarily relying on an an intermediary is a really dramatic breakthrough in the evolution of monetary and financial systems. And so part one was really laying that out. I don't know if you have any uh, specific thoughts about that framing, but I do think that it's relevant to the very nature of the data that you can derive from these networks. Yeah, definitely. And, and obviously, you know, Bitcoin being a currency, it's built on thousands of years of kind of human progress. But one of the ways I think about Bitcoin and why it's such a big breakthrough is it's the first truly digital currency, natively digital from the outset. Like you said, you know, there's been an information revolution happening for a while now, but all of our currencies are not on those digital rails until Bitcoin. And building kind of a truly digital currency from the ground up opens up a whole new world of possibilities of properties you can build into the currency, of ways you can use the currency. And, you know, we're, we're just starting to see that really come to fruition with Bitcoin. Precisely. I think what's, what's also interesting is that this native internet asset was also born kind of in the context of traditional financial institutions and and their limitations. And so there is like this sort of very interesting, it's a new asset, it's a true native currency, but it's also arguably kind of an improvement upon sort of the existing financial infrastructure that so many people rely on today. That I think is really sort of the framing that we try to take, especially in, you know, trying to educate institutions and and investors on how to understand this is that the promise of Bitcoin, yes, on one hand, it's you got to stay with the times. And if the economic activity is in the digital world, you'd want to have sort of a, a native digital asset. But on the other hand, it's also kind of understanding how the promise of Bitcoin is understood 
in relation to the limitations that sort of traditional financial systems have had in their sort of evolution. Kind of looking at Bitcoin as sort of this trust-minimized institution that is really counter to the trust-based model that a lot of the institutions today rely on is a real breakthrough in coordinating activity more broadly. It's a really important point. And yeah, I mean, just looking back at at when and why Bitcoin was founded back in 2009, it was basically a direct response to the 2008 financial crisis and just a loss of trust in our traditional financial institutions. And, you know, obviously we do have a digital currency in some form kind of existed before Bitcoin, but it was digital mixed with these kind of physical, non-digital rails and infrastructure, right? So we can send digital transactions using your credit cards or using your bank accounts, but there's kind of these physical infrastructure underlying that where the banks are holding physical dollars or, you know, maybe not, but there's a physical bank that's backing that. And Bitcoin came through and just kind of reimagine that whole thing and, and the system underlying the, the currency is, is really fascinating and I think a huge breakthrough. Absolutely. I think that's like a very powerful framing, especially for those who are just trying to understand Bitcoin as that sort of lowercase b Bitcoin, the asset. It really is a standardized unit of value that's embedded into an internet protocol. And the value of that asset sort of acts as this signaling mechanism that aligns stakeholders and is what is effectively allows for kind of the elimination of a trust-based model. When you think about what Bitcoin is at its core, it's really just free open source software. And yet that has transformed into this complete financial system that facilitates the transfer and custody of what many argue to be the hardest, scarcest asset in the world. One of the really unique properties of Bitcoin and, and what we lay out in the paper is that it's a digital bearer asset that's very similar to a commodity. You know, you know, the whole digital gold narrative is not without reason. At the same time, it has extremely unique monetary properties that really can only exist on kind of the interweb. The ability to easily divide or port or transfer of a hard asset only exists in this new paradigm. And so I really do appreciate that point, especially in the context of sort of traditional financial systems. I think that for now, let's quickly just wrap up part one, because I really want to get into the meat of part two, which I think with your sort of network data and market data, there was some very interesting insight that we were able to pull. But for part one, I think that there's a really interesting framing that we sort of built out around how financial systems that have been sort of founded upon this trust-based model have failed to provide what we've defined as predictable economic assurances. So going back to that, how the trust-based model falls short really what we've been alluding to is that the integrity of an institution today is really reliant upon those who control that institution. And so any sort of rule that's enforced is usually enforced top down and is really only guaranteed by sort of those human arbiters. And so under this sort of system, particularly as it pertains to financial systems and the transaction and and storage of value, these institutions have failed to provide what we've defined as sort of four predictable economic assurances. And so I'll read those out just for context. The first is sort of that value should be exchanged globally and freely. The second, that wealth should be owned wholly and protected. The third, the rules of the institution should be enforced reliably and predictably. And finally, the integrity of the institution should itself be kind of natively verifiable. And so throughout the piece, we go assurance by assurance in outlining kind of why we think the trust-based model 
has fallen short or failed to meet those assurances and how Bitcoin as a new novel economic institution is uniquely kind of designed to satisfy those assurances. Yeah, I think you did a great job of laying out these four assurances and kind of talk what we were talking about earlier, how digital currencies open up new possibilities for creating these systems. Something like, for example, how the rules should be enforced reliably and predictably. I think a great example of that is Bitcoin has a max supply basically coded into the system from the start. So you can see Bitcoin's entire kind of issuance schedule and predictably for, for years to come because it's coded into the core of the system. Having infrastructure like this, where the rules of the system are actually encoded into the code itself, it is really cool and I think really important. Absolutely. And especially, I mean, in, in the context of what we're seeing with the fickle monetary authorities and across the globe, especially in sort of times of crises where you can basically enact monetary policy completely unpredictably. And then that ends up biting holders in the butt. Contrary to that with Bitcoin, you have sort of this predictable monetary policy to your point that is testimony to a very robust system of checks and balances in which you don't necessarily have that single point of failure or that final executive decision maker in which many argue that Bitcoin's most valuable feature is actually its reliable monetary policy. But if you really unpack what that means, all it means is that it's very, very improbable, if not impossible, to impose arbitrary changes to the system without sort of stakeholder-wide consensus. Yeah, exactly. And even if there is change, it's all completely verifiable. It's all publicly viewable. One of Bitcoin's big innovations is it just flipped kind of the old model upside down, where instead of all the data being kind of behind closed doors and held by different institutions, it's all out there. So it's all verifiable. Anyone can can download a node and make sure that everything is as it should be. And I think it's also really important, the second point you have here, which is that wealth should be owned and protected. That's becoming more and more important every day globally, you know. So, and Bitcoin using cryptography, it's it's basically impossible to steal someone's Bitcoins unless you somehow get their private keys or basically get access to their computer or their hardware. So yeah, I think it, this combination of innovation really makes it a truly kind of game-changing currency. To your last point, I do think that the sort of wealth being wholly owned and protected is probably one of Bitcoin's most underrated features and likely sort of its biggest breakthrough. At least personally, I think that that is sort of one of the most fascinating use cases for Bitcoin, which if you think about it, sort of embeds this independent property system within the network. For the first time ever, we can basically separate property rights from state. Uh, If you look at sort of the the history of how property rights are really a function of a, a local enforcer, will enter sort of the advent of Bitcoin and cryptography and private key cryptography. It introduces a property system that basically operates outside the traditional system. And so when you look at sort of jurisdictions that are less reliable in enforcing property rights, kind of having uh, an asset in which, you know, all you need is possession of a private key um, that you can custody to your discretion is a really, really powerful paradigm shift. Yeah, it creates these opportunities for kind of emergent technology built on top of it and emergent behavior where each owner of Bitcoin is essentially their own bank in a way. They control their assets. So that allows other people to come build new products, new applications on top of that, which anyone can then seamlessly interact with. To your final point about the, the network being sort of verifiable, where you have this open source network 
that has these native verification tools. What does that mean? Well, it means that as a sort of participant in the network, you can track all the balances on the accounts. You have capabilities equal to anyone else in the network and really allows for you not only to sort of verify the authenticity of the assets that you're holding and the transactions that you're receiving, but then goes into you you being able to really break down the network activity, the security of the network. And that's really all what we define as sort of on-chain analysis. You can really think of on-chain metrics as having a 24-7 dashboard with real-time transparency that sort of levels the playing field for all participants in the network. And I think that's a really powerful framing that we haven't really seen in any other asset class. Yeah, it it really is pretty incredible. And one thing we say all the time is don't trust verify. And basically all that means is you literally don't have to trust the Bitcoin network. Well, to a degree, you don't don't have to trust transactions because you can go and verify yourselves. You know, if someone says they sent X amount to someone else, you can go see that on chain. If someone claims they have a certain amount of Bitcoin, you can see that as long as you know what their address is. So yeah, it just completely changes the game in in terms of transparency. Agree. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you an investor looking for long-term capital appreciation, but worried about the short-term volatility associated with innovative companies? Well, you're not alone. Many investors appear to be afraid of companies that offer newer, faster, cheaper, and creative products and services. Now you can avoid these innovative companies. How? Ask your advisor today if investing in a traditional broad-based index is right for you. A broad-based index provides investors with a feeling of safety and comfort, knowing that they hold past success. Often based on tangible assets like a bank branch, railroad, or real estate, indices should generate predictable cash flows because, hey, that's historically been the case, and things never change. Side effects may include, but are not limited to, owning companies associated with the traditional world order. Investors holding stocks associated with traditional transportation, banking, bricks-and-mortar retail, and linear TV may experience headache, nausea, and increased blood pressure due to the accelerating threat of disruptive innovation. Your investment portfolio doesn't need to be bothered by a changing world. It owns the old world. Additional side effects could include shame, embarrassment, and humiliation after learning that you may own companies built on what could be a dying business model. If overexposed to a broad-based index, you may notice poor performance and sagging returns. This could become permanent. So take control of your investment portfolio and talk to your advisor today. Who wants to achieve long-term growth when they can think about quarter-to-quarter performance? This parody was brought to you by ARK Invest. To learn more about the areas that could be disrupted by innovation, download Bad Ideas at arkinvest.com slash badideas. We had big ideas, and now we have bad ideas. Please check out the report. And now back to my conversation with Nate. So with that backdrop, I mean, if we could summarize that in sort of a few sentences, it's really Bitcoin is creating the possibility of a global monetary system that's controlled by individuals instead of nation states. And that it has been sort of facilitated by kind of information technology. With that as a framing, It also presents a very sort of unique opportunity for investors where you can argue that, you know, in our view, Bitcoin is the most compelling monetary asset to emerge since gold. And so that's really what the focus of part two was, is really kind of, okay, if you now understand Bitcoin as this novel economic institution and you understand how it fits into the existing kind of traditional financial system and how it's unique enough to provide real added value, is there sort of an investment opportunity on the horizon as a, as a function of these value propositions. Part two was really sort of laying that out, I would say, from an inst- more from an institutional lens once again, 
where, you know, a lot of people sort of like to ask, you know, are institutions ready for Bitcoin? Are institutions going to come into Bitcoin? I think very rarely is the reverse test. Is Bitcoin ready for institutions? And when you look at, yes, Bitcoin as an asset class or as the birth of a new asset class, where are we today as it pertains to other asset classes? Are we sort of capable of absorbing institutional demand? And what might that opportunity look like kind of five, 10 years down the line? I want to start out with with asking you if you want to just go over Bitcoin's evolution in its price over the last decade and the infrastructure that has emerged, then we can sort of take it from there. Sure. So yeah, Bitcoin has had a pretty crazy ride over the last decade. So a lot of people kind of are familiar with Bitcoin's origin story, but Bitcoin kind of popped out of nowhere in basically late 2008. As I mentioned, it was a response to the 2008 financial crisis. But the first kind of mention of Bitcoin was on a pretty small cryptography forum where a pseudonymous person named Satoshi Nakamoto sent a pretty kind of obscure cryptic email to this list, just mentioning that they had written a white paper for Bitcoin. Again, basically just out of nowhere, which which is pretty crazy to think. Bitcoin appeared almost fully formed overnight. The white paper was written. And within a couple of months, it was online, up and running. It's kind of hard to appreciate how big of a breakthrough this truly was, but, but Bitcoin solved a bunch of kind of hard problems that computer scientists have literally been working on for decades, some of the top minds in the world. And Bitcoin just kind of appeared out of nowhere, solving a lot of these problems. So from there, it's been, you know, it was a slow start for Bitcoin just because of these kind of obscure origins. So there were a couple of years where Bitcoin was essentially worthless. There are a couple of famous stories. One is about how in 2009, someone paid 10,000 Bitcoin for a pizza to get a pizza delivered. And now it's a national holiday. <laughs> yeah. Those 10,000 Bitcoins are worth about $100 million at, at kind of the peak of Bitcoin's price a couple of years ago. There was another interesting story that we found where someone posted on a Bitcoin talk forum in again in 2009, trying to auction off 10,000 Bitcoin for a minimum of $50. And there were no bids. Again, that's over $100 million that someone could have bought for $50. So it really just started out of nowhere. But within a couple of years, Bitcoin took off pretty fast. So by kind of mid-2010, we saw the first big Bitcoin exchange pop up, Mt. Gox. And that opened up a whole new bunch of opportunities for Bitcoin. So Again, when it, when Bitcoin first started, no one was really using it. No one knew what it was for. Once Mt. Gox got there, people started trading it. And that's when a lot of the excitement for Bitcoin started building. But unfortunately, Mt. Gox crashed and burned itself. Within three years, uh, Mt. Gox was doing almost 70% of all Bitcoin transactions, Bitcoin trading. But in April 2013, Mt. Gox kind of infamously collapsed. It got hacked. Bitcoin's price... After crossing $100 and then shortly after crossing $1,000, it crashed. It kind of entered a bear market for a couple of years. So basically, uh, the, the story of kind of the early days of Bitcoin are, are a lot of ups and downs. People were questioning whether Bitcoin was dead after this happened. And that's kind of a, a repetitive story throughout Bitcoin's life. Because, of course, after that, Bitcoin was down for a couple of years, but it, it bounced back up pretty quickly. And out of kind of out of Mt. Gox ashes, this new modern infrastructure started to be built. So in a way, this 
spectacular burnout, the spectacular crash of Mt. Gox paved the way for the next group of exchanges and, and for building real infrastructure that would kind of be able to withstand large trading and not get hacked and go to zero. So that started in earnest kind of in 2014, 2015. And that's where a lot of the exchanges that you see today, like you know Coinbase, Kraken, Huobi, a lot of the bigger crypto exchanges that still exist got kind of started around then or after them. Crypto stories since then, kind of the other big highlights are 2017 and 2018. Obviously, there was a, another big price surge. That's when you know Bitcoin hit its its highest prices, kind of at the end of 2017, early 2018. Again, there was you know some speculative bubbles around that. A lot of that was driven by what we call the ICO boom on Ethereum. People were launching kind of a whole bunch of new crypto assets on Ethereum and tokens, which pumped the entire market up. So there, there was another kind of boom and crash, and people were again wondering if Bitcoin would be able to survive. But Bitcoin survived the crash. It's, it went through a couple of years of kind of sideways movement, but now is on the rise again. So yeah, I think kind of the overall theme for me of, of Bitcoin's rise is it came from nowhere. It's been, there've been a ton of times where it's it's been questioned whether it will be able to recover, but it's been incredibly resilient, which at the end of the day, I think just goes to show how real this technology is and how kind of battle tested it is and ready for a kind of bigger market. I wanted to focus on one point that you brought up a few times that I think is really important as it pertains to not only Bitcoin, but kind of the crypto markets more broadly. And that is, again, how sort of organic Bitcoin's evolution has been and was, and that we often sort of underappreciate just how unlikely this sort of asset can emerge from the depths of the internet. One of the main value propositions that Bitcoiners like to emphasize is that whereas Bitcoin was extremely organic in its evolution, I would say anything I would say that is attempting to improve upon Bitcoin or any new asset but by default is nowhere sort of near as organic. So this is really sort of a, a grassroots movement sort of of cypherpunk enthusiasts that ended up kind of aligning on a single mission that became a threat against the existing monetary world order. So the dynamics as to how Bitcoin emerged, I think, is something that we really haven't seen in any, any other asset. It was a pretty crazy rise. And I think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is still anonymous. We still have no idea who Satoshi is. So... At least to my knowledge, there's never really been a monetary system in the history of the world that's kind of grown organically and evolved organically like this one. And that's part of the reason why people think that it's, I would say the mainstream mostly thinks that it's bound to die. You know, where did this come from? Who is this guy? That's to the mainstream media, part of why they've been so doubtful about Bitcoin's viability. When what's interesting is that Bitcoin users like use that as one of its fundamental features. We've seen since uh, December of 2010, the media declaring Bitcoin dead, you know, 400 times. And, and all while sort of Bitcoin continues to sort of evolve in both its infrastructure and its price. On the other hand, you have some institutions that are sort of looking at Bitcoin and crypto and saying, wow, we had an insane run up. Bitcoin sort of compound annual returns have delivered, you know, 119% over the last five years. We went from a zero market price to almost $20,000 per Bitcoin. You know, is there an opportunity or are we too late to the game? And so that's where we say that even if Bitcoin has had a nice run, 
we still think it's really early on in its path to monetization. And I think that the sort of skepticism fueled by the mainstream media really only reinforces how far away we are from full global adoption. For context, we size the opportunity, I would say, to an inside you know, Bitcoin enthusiast quite conservatively, but that still shows that there's order of magnitudes to be gained um, from the opportunity. So briefly, I just want to sort of touch on some of the main opportunities or the largest market opportunities for Bitcoin. To give you an idea, Bitcoin today is around $200 billion in market cap. And we think that could scale dependent on sort of the numbers that use to between one and $5 trillion within the next five years. And so that is order of magnitude higher than where we are today. At a high level, one of the first ones that most people are familiar with is Bitcoin as the digital gold, where you kind of look at how an asset accrues value, a monetary asset specifically, in which sort of demand is a function of its ability to serve the roles of money. That's why for thousands of years, the world recognized gold as a sustainable form of money. And while it's maintained its status as that store of value, we saw sort of a lot of limitations begin to surface as a medium of exchange and unit of account in the 20th century, particularly kind of because of its physical nature, which led to sort of the centralization of reserves that ultimately led to just the complete decoupling between central bank monetary policy and kind of gold's inflation rate. Today, we see sort of Bitcoin as improving upon many of gold's characteristics. It is scarce, it is durable, but it's also divisible, it's verifiable, it's portable, it's transferable. And all of these characteristics protected against sort of the threat or the fate that gold faced. If Bitcoin ends up capturing you know, 10% of gold's market cap, that is you know, a trillion dollar market cap, which is five times more than what we see today. Another interesting market opportunity that we've focused on as well ties into really Bitcoin as providing that independent property system or providing an asset in which an individual can wholly own it, kind of agnostic of jurisdiction. And that is Bitcoin providing almost insurance functionality or protection against the arbitrary seizure of assets. If you size a sensible allocation to Bitcoin as the probability that you know, a corrupt or misguided regime will confiscate assets either directly or indirectly, directly just through outright seizure or indirectly through inflation, and you size that as around you know, 5% on average globally, then Bitcoin's market cap could, could vault more than tenfold. If you take 5% of total high net worth individual wealth, which stands at around $46 trillion, that in and of itself is a $2.5 trillion opportunity. And then finally, the last two is really kind of Bitcoin as a, a global settlement network where you look at Bitcoin as a network that can't censor transactions in which the underlying asset can't be inflated away by institutions, and that provides very, very strong guarantees to settlement, then it effectively provides a mechanism that does away with any need for counterparties to mediate and settle transactions. And so a lot of people sort of like to define Bitcoin not as this payment system, but actually as this kind of high value global settlement system. If you look at what the opportunity looks like there, in the US alone, deposits are around $15 trillion. They generate $1.3 quadrillion in settlement volumes. And Bitcoin were to capture 10% of those settlement volumes at a similar sort of deposit velocity, that too is sort of a $1.5 trillion opportunity. And then finally, as you alluded to, Nate, in terms of kind of looking at 
different regimes and the reliability of monetary authorities kind of enforcing predictable monetary policy. Well, in the case that they don't, individuals and citizens are subject to complete debasement of their wealth. And so we might see a scenario where a lot of emerging markets go or seek Bitcoin as kind of a hard asset in times of hyperinflation or monetary distress that could effectively act as a catalyst for outright demonetization in in these emerging markets. And so if you were to size that opportunity and Bitcoin were to capture, say, 5% of the global monetary base outside of the four largest currencies, so independent of the US dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro, that too presents a $1 trillion market opportunity. All of these opportunities are also sort of additive and you have a finite amount of Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is divisible. And so any real new demand for Bitcoin, regardless of the use case, is additive one on top of the other. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me, the settlement use case is super interesting too, because a lot of people always... People will often talk about Bitcoin as a payments network. Sometimes critics will ask, is Bitcoin actually used for anything? Are people actually using it to pay for anything? And the answer is is often no, at least for now, because a lot of reasons, but you know, Bitcoin's price is volatile. A lot of people use it as a store of value. But one of the truly exciting things about Bitcoin is you can send $10 million worth of Bitcoin to the other side of the world for a fee of a couple of dollars and have it settle very quickly within 10 minutes to an hour. That's really huge. And you know that the payment use case might eventually catch up once the technology scales a little bit. People might eventually use it for smaller payments. But as kind of a global settlement and value transfer network for larger amounts, it's really incredible and already serving that use case. Precisely. I'll, I'll touch on that payments use case to kind of lead into the next topic. That I found has been sort of really distracting for many people who I would say can't make the hump in, in accepting Bitcoin as sort of a, a, an asset sort of worthy of having exposure to. Part of that sort of payments use case is technological by its nature. The base layer of the Bitcoin network can really only handle a max throughput. And that throughput, I would say, is inconsistent with low value microtransactions at scale. And another limitation that a lot of people point to as well, which I think is really just a distracting limitation, is Bitcoin's volatility, right? So people are like, oh, well, you don't want to become the Bitcoin pizza guy. Why would I want to buy sort of a cup of coffee? Bitcoin is too volatile and it'll always be volatile. We also see kind of the volatility argument when it comes to exposure to Bitcoin as an investment or even as a store of value, where you know a lot of, I would say, institutional investors today are still hesitant to gain exposure because of Bitcoin's volatility being that store of value deal breaker, right? They sort of posit that no one would want to hold an asset that stores value, or how can you even claim that an asset stores value with such dramatic swings in its day-to-day price? And, you know, we, we've written about this in the past. I would say that, you know, Bitcoin's volatility is really a testament to the credibility of its monetary policy, right? Where it's effectively chosen explicit macroeconomic policy decisions in its system that makes its volatility an emergent property more than sort of a feature or bug. And so when you kind of look at this in the context of the famous sort of monetary or impossible trinity or trilemma triangle, right, where a monetary authority can only choose between two of of three macroeconomic policy decisions, 
Bitcoin has effectively chosen to have an independent monetary policy and free capital movement. And so because Bitcoin has chosen those two, it can't really have a fixed exchange rate or it has a free floating exchange rate. And for that reason, you see sort of volatility emerge because the price ends up being a function of demand relative to its sort of strictly scarce supply. So all that to say that I think that when you look at how institutions should view this, I think that volatility is actually something that's, again, more distracting than it is practical when making a decision about gaining exposure. Really, what you should look at is how, in relation to a traditional portfolio, kind of Bitcoin fits, particularly sort of the uncorrelated nature of the behavior that it has relative to other asset classes, which suggests that it can and should serve as a strategic allocation in well-diversified portfolios. Part of the research that we conducted is, you know, we looked at the 90-day rolling correlation between Bitcoin and nine other assets over the last 10 years and found that Bitcoin's mean correlation to, let's say, the S&P 500 is near zero. For the most part, the correlations between Bitcoin and all of the asset classes have ranged between negative 0.2 and 0.2. Recently, we have seen so, sort of spikes in that correlation, but you know, those were, I would argue, kind of one-off events and exceptions in which it eventually sort of reverts to the mean. But Bitcoin really appears to be the only asset with consistently low correlations relative to traditional asset classes. And I think that that is another sort of underappreciated aspect of Bitcoin when you look at the data, right? It's like there's one thing where, you know, you look at you know, the S&P crashing and Bitcoin crashing, and you're like, oh, this is a correlated asset. It's a whole other thing when you take a step back and see that over its price history, it has been sort of the most uncorrelated asset. Yeah, and I think that alone is an intriguing reason to at least consider Bitcoin as part of your portfolio. Just because, like you said, it's almost impossible to find assets that are truly lowly correlated with almost every other asset. And Bitcoin has been that over the last 10 years. I want to dive in now to Bitcoin's maturity as an institutional asset, which goes back to that question that we were asking where, you know, is Bitcoin ready for institutions? This was a fundamental part of the data that you guys were, were able to provide. So if you can talk about that, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So basically what we looked at is we looked at kind of the current market infrastructure. What's the trading volume for Bitcoin? What does liquidity look like? So if institutions do want to get into Bitcoin, are they going to be able to do it? And as I mentioned, when I was talking about Bitcoin's price history a little bit, it's been a, a kind of a crazy ride thus far and things are definitely still in progress of being built. But I think over the last few years, especially the market infrastructure has matured a lot. So just starting off by looking at Bitcoin's trading volume, interestingly, like the answering the question of what Bitcoin's trading volume actually is, is more complicated on its face than it may seem. Bitcoin structure is basically there are a bunch of centralized exchanges that trade Bitcoin. These exchanges are all over the world. There are hundreds, probably thousands of them there. Some of them are regulated, some are not. So again, it's a very kind of emergent structure. So the first question is, what kind of exchanges do you look at? And what quote and base pairs do you look at? So for example, if you're just looking at Bitcoin to US dollar market spot trading, the market isn't too big, at least right now. It's about 200 million, ranging up to kind of a billion dollars a day. If you start looking at other markets, adding other fiat currencies, for example, it starts getting a little bigger. So if you look at 
Bitcoin trading against all fiat markets, that gets up to about 0.6 billion dollars, so 600 million dollars a day. Now, what's starting to happen uh, even more increasingly? So, Bitcoin historically was trading against USD or fiat currencies. Now, it's being traded against other cryptos, and a lot of Bitcoin trading volume is now dominated by stablecoins. So, stablecoins are another subset of crypto assets. That are pegged to be stable. Most of them are pegged to be stable to the U.S. dollar. So they're basically we call them crypto dollars often at Coinmetrics. Basically, a, a cryptocurrency version of the dollar. So stablecoin markets have now taken over. Though, if you look at fiat and stablecoin trading markets, that's about two billion dollars worth of volume a day. And then if you also look at other crypto asset markets, so trading against Ethereum, other smaller coins, you're up to about two and a half billion a day. Finally, the last kind of subset of markets we look at is also adding on derivatives markets, and that's where a much bigger chunk comes in. So derivative markets are doing about 10 billion on their own. So combined, the spot markets and derivative markets are up about 12.4 billion right now. It's still maturing. That's just kind of a small drop in the bucket compared to most other or a lot of other asset classes, but it's growing really fast. One other thing worth noting here is that. A lot of this. So I mentioned there are, there are a ton of different exchanges. Most of the trading volume, at least for now, is concentrated on on four big exchanges: Coinbase, Bitstamp, Kraken, and Bitfinex. There are a bunch of others as well, but this is where most of the trading volume is occurring. Coinbase, especially, is is a regulated and, and well respected exchange. So now that players like Coinbase and others are starting to enter the market, we're starting to see more trading kind of go towards them and. Be more regulated and kind of reputable than historically for for a lot of crypto trading. If you want to, I think you you alluded to a point where you know Bitcoin's uh, trading is growing. I think if you can touch on kind of what those numbers look like and what the I would say the closest comparison to Bitcoin's trading volume is to you know another asset class. Yeah. So right now, Bitcoin's trading volume is most similar to kind of Fang stocks, big tech stocks. So it's a little bigger than something like a Netflix or Google, but lower than Amazon or Facebook. So, so right now the trading volume, at least the spot market trading volume, is closer to kind of a single big equity than a whole asset class. But it's growing exponentially, and it's it's growing really fast. We kind of extrapolated Bitcoin's volume growth rate, and at this rate, if Bitcoin trading volume keeps growing as it has for the last ten years. It would only take a couple more years for it to pass some of the bigger Fang stocks trading volume, and it would only take about five years for it to catch up with U.S. equities、uh, spot market volume. So, given that it's organic and emergent nature, it's growing fast and it's growing exponentially, basically. Yeah, I think that this is a very underappreciated point. I mean, it's it's compounding at an annual rate of two hundred fifteen percent, which is you know unheard of, but Kind of suggests the evolution and the maturity of Bitcoin as sort of a liquid asset, which takes me to sort of the the next point of on one hand you have Bitcoin's trading volume profile. How exactly does Bitcoin's liquidity compare to other asset classes, and and are we at healthy levels now? Yeah, so the liquidity again, it can be a little hard to measure, but. Everything that we've seen, the liquidity is actually pretty healthy compared to other asset classes. So, first of all, just looking at the bid ask spreads of、uh, most major exchanges, if you look at U.S. equity bid ask spreads, 
roughly around 0.035%. Bitcoin spreads on the biggest exchanges are 0.0001%, which is good. Again, there's sometimes these can be misleading because of, of the intricacies of the exchange. But for the most part, liquidity on the major exchanges, top four biggest exchanges is good. Once you start going to these smaller markets, the smaller exchanges, the spreads can balloon sometimes to 0.1% or more. But like I mentioned before, a large majority of the trading volume occurs on Coinbase, Bitfinex, Kraken, and the biggest exchanges. With that as context, the next section, which I think was quite informative and sort of the follow-up question to the conclusion on liquidity and, and volume is, okay, how much should an institutional investor allocate? Do you want to touch briefly on the simulations that we ran, I would say, with the fact that Bitcoin is, I would say, most closely resembles a large cap equity stock. So how that framing fits into actual allocation. Yeah, definitely. So we ran some portfolio simulations using a million different portfolios uh, composed of different assets. So looking at Bitcoin with a a portfolio of gold, equities, basically S&P 500, bonds, currencies, commodities, and real estate. We ran a couple of different simulations. The first one, we limited the Bitcoin exposure to a maximum of 1%. For that one, the efficient frontier kind of maximum sharp ratio was about 0.74% Bitcoin allocation. Then we took off that limitation where we ran a simulation. Okay, if, if you're not limiting it to 1%, how much Bitcoin would you want to allocate to your portfolio? There, the maximum sharp ratio was about 6.55%. This is backward looking. We then did a couple forward-looking ones, which are obviously harder to predict, but we looked at three different total markets, ranging from $1 trillion to $11 trillion in looking five years into the future. And for that one, the maximum sharp ratios basically ranged from 4.8% to about 25%. So basically looking back, there's putting between 07 and about 6.5% of your uh, portfolio in Bitcoin would have led to your maximum sharp ratios. And looking forward, it could be anywhere up to 25% or higher. In conclusion there, the ranges, dependent on what simulation you're running, is between you know 1% and, and up to 25%. We'll end sort of on some of the risks that I think a lot of institutions you know, try to understand or grasp their head around and ones that I would say pertain particularly to the institutional world. One reason why a lot of people are still hesitant to make the jump simply has to do with custody. You know, when you compare sort of traditional assets like stocks or bonds, custodying Bitcoin is a lot different and there needs to be a strong understanding of managing private keys and solutions themselves that don't exist in traditional asset custody. Um, so even if you are outsourcing custody, so even if you're an institution that's not directly custodying private keys, you'd still need to have a strong understanding of exactly how that framework operates. Doing that in consistent with you know, regulation is also a, a difficulty that many have faced, particularly in the US, where let's say that you do know how to custody your assets. If you're doing it on behalf of clients, you would basically be breaking sort of the qualified custodian rule. Where as a manager, you can't kind of fully custody the assets yourself. So there is both regulatory custody aspect and then just the technical custody aspect um, that I think we're still kind of relatively early on in, but are definitely maturing in that regard. On regulation, 
I would say that there's also kind of a question of where Bitcoin falls along kind of the classification of an asset, kind of an earlier point that I alluded to where part of the difficulty of defining Bitcoin as a new asset class is that it, it, it's so difficult to fit it in a single bucket. Today, sort of, it falls between the regulatory cracks of a, a stock and a commodity. And you obviously have regulators who are trying to stake their turf. And so you get one regulator stepping on another regulator's toes. And it, it, it becomes very difficult to navigate through as an institutional investor holder. And then finally, the over-institutionalization, which I think is a really interesting new threat that has more recently surfaced that really tries to talk about how if you know we don't take the necessary precautions, Bitcoin's fate could end up just like gold's fate, where we end up having kind of a centralization of reserves, in this case, on exchanges, in which users basically optimize for whatever is most cost-efficient um, they end up transacting in IOUs or, you know, at the very least, end up just custodying their wallets on these centralized solutions that effectively provides a honeypot that eliminates a lot of kind of Bitcoin's core value propositions. So you have this real paradox where, on one hand, if you need to abide by sort of the regulatory custodianship as an institution, you end up, if taken to the extreme, you know, working against the ethos of, of Bitcoin itself. You know, those are kind of things that we booted on, but I would say really the main points of part two were emphasizing on what Bitcoin's volume and liquidity profile look like and that we're still very early on in this opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I think it's important. The over-institutionalization risk is an important one because exactly like you said, you know, we've been talking so much about how one of the big promises of Bitcoin is you can own your private keys and custody it. But now as bigger institutions are coming in, we're starting to give them control of our private keys and it's kind of getting back into the cycle we were. The big takeaway for me is Bitcoin is just still so early on, even though it's 10 years old now, it's such a complex and ambitious technology. It's still just kind of in, in its infancy and there's still a long way to go for growth. Awesome. Well, for the listeners, if you all are interested in looking at sort of the graphs that we were really explaining in this episode, uh, again, you can just go to arc-invest.com and, and download both parts. But it was a pleasure working with you and Coinmetrics, Nate. And I really hope that we can collaborate on research in the future as well. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much, Yassin. Of course, where can people find you and Coinmetrics? So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is just Nate Madry. Same with Coinmetrics. We're pretty active on Twitter. Our handle is Coinmetrics. Also, be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. It's called State of the Network, and we do a ton of data analysis, both on network and market data. Highly recommend State of the Network. Definitely one of my favorite newsletters. And we will end it at that. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, guys. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.